Welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. This is your friendly neighborhood podcast host, Daniel Bauer. Better Leaders, Better Schools is a weekly show for ruckus makers. And what is a ruckus maker? A leader who has found freedom from the status quo. A leader who makes change happen. A leader who never, ever gives up. Remember middle school? What were you like back then? Did you break the rules or did you follow them? Imagine one day that you were playing a game in the hallway, a game you played countless times before, and it was no big deal. But this time, it's different. And after playing the game, a teacher follows you down the hall, knocks all your school materials from your hands to the floor, and starts to angrily point in your face. And he says to you, Do you want to start something? This is the exact story I discuss with my guest, Dr. Tracy Benson, at the beginning of the show. A teacher to a student, a middle school student, pointing in his face saying, do you want to start something? Today we dig into a very important topic, race, racism, and unconscious bias. And so, Ruckus Maker, I'm so glad you're here. And before we jump into the episode, let's take some time to thank our show's sponsors. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by Organized Binder, a program designed to develop your students' executive function and non-cognitive skills. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. It's basically like a Fitbit for teachers, helping them be mindful of teacher talk versus student talk. Get a special 20% discount for your school or district by visiting teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Have you ever wondered what kind of leader makes a good mastermind member? Well, recently I asked the leaders I serve, and here's what they said about their peers. Eileen, a deputy head in Qingzhou, China, said, Mastermind members are supportive, wise, and not afraid to kick your butt. Chris, a vice principal in Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada, Courageous risk-takers and learners are how I describe my mastermind peers. And finally, Melody, a principal in Kentucky, said mastermind members are generous, driven, and never satisfied with the status quo. If that sounds like you or peers that you'd like to surround yourself with, apply to the mastermind today at betterleadersbetterschools.com forward slash mastermind. Dr. Tracy A. Benson is an assistant professor of educational leadership at University of North Carolina, Charlotte. He's a former public school teacher, middle school AP, and high school principal. Dr. Benson received his doctorate in education leadership from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Master's of School Administration from UNC Chapel Hill. He is also the co-author of Unconscious Bias in Schools. And Dr. Benson, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me today, Daniel. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So when we chatted last time, we're going to start with this story. There was a hallway incident that really illustrated how you and your peers were held to different standards by the faculty. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, it's what I call uh, my my racial awakening. And so I was in the fifth grade. I remember this very vividly. I was in the fifth grade and I was leaving art class. And I had, um, it was a, a two-gallon 
milk container that we were, we had to hollow out and put our art supplies in. We're all required to have these. And so I was carrying my two-gallon art supply um, kit and leaving art class. And I noticed my uh, friend Alex, who rode the bus with me from Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee. And so him and I were both a part of the 220 program. That's a program that bust out you know, low-income kids from Milwaukee to Brown Deer, Wisconsin, to integrate the school socioeconomically and also racially. So I've one of very few black kids um, in my middle school. And so Alex just happened to be a white kid from, from Milwaukee, but he was low-income, so that's why he was a part of the program. But anyway, so I was walking by him in the hallway, leaving art class, and we used to play this game where we would try to, you know, we'd tap each other on the shoulder while we're at, at the locker, and then you know, when one would turn around, then we, you know, we shut the locker, you know, try to get each other by shutting each other's locker. And so he was at his locker and I was walking by him. So I had the perfect opportunity. So I tapped Alex on his shoulder. He turned around. I reached around and shut his locker. And this is a game that we, you know, we'd played for forever as far as I'm concerned. And so, you know, I laughed. He sort of laughed because I got him, but not really. <laughs> but then, you know, I, I walked on as if it was just another day. And I just, uh, you know, I, it was a joke that we played, played on each other very often. So we knew the game. But unbeknownst to me, one of our teachers, Mr. Evans, I still remember his name, uh, had seen this happen, and I didn't know that he saw it happen. So he'd walked up behind me and snatched my art supplies out of my hand. Then he tucked it and dumped them right in the middle of the hallway, threw my curtain down, and kept on walking. And I was really confused about why this happened. I was, you know, because I was, in my mind, I was one of the good kids. I never got in trouble. You know, it was, it was the worst thing in the world for my mom to get a call home about the slightest thing. So I never got in trouble. So I was really confused about why a teacher would do this. But anyway, so I got down on my knees and I just, you know, quietly picked up my art supplies, put them back into the, my uh, two-gallon milk carton and kept on walking. And so I'm halfway down the hallway and Mr. Evans comes up beside me and he puts his arm around me. And starts to explain to me why he did what he did. Now, I didn't hear a word that he said because I was in shock. And so instinctively, I took his arm and I pushed it off of me. And so then he whips around uh, with raging mad, you know, he's raging mad and put a finger in my face, almost touching my nose and screamed at me and says, do you want to start with me? And again, I was still in shock. And of course, I don't want to start with a teacher. So I said, you know, my reaction was like, no, of course, I don't want to start with you. What are you talking about? You know? And so he turns around, storms off down the hallway. and. I don't quite remember what happened after that, but I do remember that I was very confused about why that happened. Uh, why had such a explosive response to me when I was one of the good kids? Because I remember that, you know, before that incident, I remember some of my uh, black and brown friends getting into trouble just like that with teachers like Mr. Evans, you know, fingers and faces being yelled at, being kicked out of class. And in my mind, I was like, why don't they just, these, these black kids just act better? You know, we're out here in this, in this suburban school. Why don't we just act better? Why, why is it that we have to act out that we are the ones getting into the most trouble? But after this incident with Mr. Evans, I realized that, you know, we weren't, we probably weren't acting any worse than what the white kids were acting, but we were being treated differently. Mm -hmm. And so after that moment, I'd started paying more attention to what types of behaviors the white kids and black kids were engaging in. And what I noticed was that the white kids, especially the white males, were allowed to get away with a lot more misbehavior, a lot more extreme misbehavior without half of the response by teachers. But whenever a black kid stepped out of line, we were treated way more harshly. And so having that experience in my you know, middle school, high school, even college experience, and then when I became a teacher and then a principal, 
I then noticed when I was in, in, in when, I, when I was a teacher and when I was a principal that this these type of behaviors towards black and brown kids were still still happening. That black and brown kids were being treated still unfairly, um, behaviorally, and different than their white counterparts. And so that was the the impetus for writing this book to bring this this phenomena to light, so that we can, as a collective, you know, uh, group of educators, address this very harmful trend in our in education in terms of the differential treatment between black students, uh, students of color and, and white students. Now, I, w- I wish I could say that it's crazy. Like, like I, I've never heard this type of story before, but unfortunately I, I can't say that because it, it's all too common, you know, and, and to think that an adult is doing this with a kid, you know, it's just, it's mind, it's mind boggling. Like how does this stuff happen? But I'm loving your book. Thank you for uh, sending it to me. And unconscious bias in schools and reading your stories there, it's it's really important. And the ruckus maker that's listening, I know they care. They care about this issue. They care about bias. They care about equity. They want to explore this stuff. But I'm also wondering if the listener is like Sarah, who had a major blind spot, right? And I'm also wondering if you you know, or not if, what other things you've seen in schools, maybe to help make this uh, this invisible visible for the listener? Yeah. So, I mean, if the listeners like Sarah, if the ruckus maker listening is, is <laughs> like Sarah, they realize that, and we all should realize that we have our blind spots. Myself, as a, uh, a man of color, I have my blind spots. And what we need to realize is that we've all been raised in a very uh, racially skewed society that we've been infected with this racial bias throughout our lifetime. And so what we need to understand is that, you know, uh, 2019, this year, is the 400th year of the transatlantic slave trade, right? Mm -hmm. And so for the better part of our past 400 years, Black and brown people have been enslaved. So from uh, 1619 until 1865, you know, Black people, it was legal to do to Black people, rape, murder, hold captive, treat Black people in a way that we couldn't even treat dogs today for the better part of our history. And and then after emancipation in 1865, there were still almost 100 years of of Jim Crow segregation. It was still also acceptable to subjugate Black and brown people to substandard conditions. And this was legal and accepted. And so for 345 years of our 400-year history, it's been legal to discriminate against Black and brown people. But Mm -hmm. we count uh, 1965, the you know, civil rights movement as the end of legalized oppression against black and brown people. That still leaves us only with 55 years opposed to 345 years of oppression. And so those that sort of legacy has residuals yeah. and in our society, in every aspect of our society. And we've all been exposed to it over the course of our lifetime. So we've ingested this legacy of racism, this legacy of racial bias. And so I think we all need to have um, empathy for one another in terms of how we've ingested this and then our responsibility for undoing the injustice of our, of our history in this country. And so, you know, of course, that, that in schools, it's going to have its, its, its effects. And so what, what we talk about in the book, and I also talk about in, in my different talks, is that we need to investigate places where there are racial disparities. So one of the most popular ones is, is in discipline. But what, what we also talk about in terms of discipline is that that is a, that's a tip of the iceberg. The classroom is actually the space where most of the racial disparities take place. 
And so one of the, the places where I've observed it most often is, is when doing classroom observations. Mm-hmm. And so what I recommend that all principals do, and even teachers, that if you want to investigate our own racial biases, is to track a classroom by race and gender. And almost invariably, uh, we will notice that there are race and gender differences in terms of the way in which we treat our students. And this is a place where racial bias is most insidious because this is the place where students, all students, come into contact with it on a daily basis. And so when we do classroom observations, we need to pay attention to how we are, are enacting our racial biases and then how we can then undo it once we recognize there are patterns in terms of the way we treat students. Yeah, and one thing I used to do as principal is just draw out the... Uh the seating chart and then draw arrows from the teacher to the students. And like you said, these, these things will just be uncovered and I wouldn't even have to tell them, Tracy, here's what's happening. I would just say like, here's the picture, Tracy, what do you see? And, and you would say, wow, I've, I've ignored half of the class. Maybe it's based on gender. Maybe it's based on uh, race, but there, there always is something going on there. And that helps the invisible become visible for us uh, outside of a, a seating chart sort of observation data feedback that we give teachers? Is, is there anything else concrete-wise that we can do to examine this unconscious bias? Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of concrete things that we can do. And in the book, we talk about, uh, one, the first and most baseline <laughs> um, thing about, about addressing racial bias in school is, is actually talking about racial bias, talking about racism, having a color-rich uh, school where we talk about discrepancies in outcomes based on race. Um, we often have a very color-mute sense of the way in which we talk about our students. We, can, we have coded language, say those students or low-income students or the at-risk students, you know. This often has, is coded language for that, that can be swapped out for students of color, uh, Latino students, you know, Black students, Native American students, Southeast Asian students. We need to talk very uh, openly and honestly about race and, and talk about the racial implications. And so and by doing that, we could then, you know, uh, identify racialized patterns. So I'm going to give you uh, an example of, uh, of that. And so one of the examples I write about in the book is a case in which I was exhibiting racial bias uh, towards students. It's a, um, when I was a high school principal, we would have a, uh, a practice of monitoring the hallways, as every principal does. You know, principals and teachers are expected to be in the hallways during passing time. And I had the second floor science hallway every day. That was my spot. And so one day after I was done monitoring the hallways, the hallways I came back to my office. And one of, the, one of my students, my black students, came in and said, you know, uh, Mr. Benson, why is it that you pick on the black students in the hallways when you're monitoring the hallways? And I was like, I don't think I do, but what do you mean by this? He's like, yeah, well, when we are in the hallways, you make it a a point to call us out if we are congregating in the hallways. So one of the rules was, because we had small hallways, a lot of students had, students had have to keep moving in between classes and they couldn't stop and congregate because that blocked up the traffic flow. And he said, whenever we do that, you address us, but you don't address the white students. And so instead of brushing them off, I said, okay, you know what? Let me take a look and see if this is in fact going on. And so for the next week, I made it, a, made it a point to not redirect any student, but just to sit in the hallway and watch what was happening. And what I did notice is that, you know, one, that all the teachers that I work with were white. Uh, what I did notice among the teachers is that when students of color congregated, teachers then drew right to them to say, keep on moving. But during this time, they passed a number of white students who were congregating and they hadn't addressed them. And so it'd become a pattern that if black and brown students were congregating, the teachers would, would see them as misbehaving, whereas the white students were exhibiting the same behavior. And so after noticing this for a week, I brought this up to the leadership team and said, you know what, this is a pattern 
that I've noticed, and we need to make a better effort about addressing the behavior and not the student. And so what we started doing is, and I had to remind myself to do every peer because I've been primed to, to have my eye draw toward the black and brown students. So I had to remind myself every day between every peer to address behavior and not the student. And so I began, if I was at the end of the hallway and I saw students congregating, I would go down the hallway and clear students, white students, groups of white students, which are usually quite a few before I got to the black and brown students. And so one, what this did was, one, it, it upset the white students because what I was subconsciously teaching them is that they have privilege and that they were above the rules. And so, yeah, they would get upset because they had privilege. And when someone has privilege, equity feels like oppression. I was like, no, no, no. We're addressing behavior. It's not just for black kids. And so then by the time I reached the black and brown kids, I would notice that they'd already be gone because they were noticing that we were addressing the behavior now and they didn't feel as targeted by, by myself and by the teachers. And so by doing this, one, it made a, a more uh, a less racially hostile environment for our black and brown students because we were actually targeting them in hallways. We stopped targeting them. And then unintentionally, we were teaching these white students, one, they have privilege, and two, we were, teach- we were passing on our racial biases to them because they were seeing us do this towards black and brown students. So by breaking that cycle, it was good for everyone, not just for the black and brown students, but for the white students that we were now uh, teaching them that we need to be more equitable and not target black and brown students. The interesting part about that is what I'm hearing you say, the black and brown students then reflected on the behavior and self-corrected, right? Before anybody even came to them uh, because you were now not privileging uh, white students and breaking up the behavior there. And so they just applied that reasoning to themselves. Right. And I mean, the look in their eyes was interesting when I first started doing it because I would get the, the peek over the shoulder like, oh, my gosh, Benson's clearing white kids. We better get out of here. <laughs> right? Because um, that, that wasn't happening before. They were being yeah. targeted before that. Now we're doing behavior. They're like, oh, my, this is something where, you know, we were more subject to the rules before. But now they're correcting white kids on this that, oh, gosh, you know, we better self-correct also. Couple of things to unpack for the ruckus maker too. Tracy, I love how you are open to thinking, maybe I don't have it right. Like, let me investigate my own behaviors, right? And you were owning that. So uh, that can be tough to admit that maybe you're not perfect or you don't have it all together. There's something to work on. And so I really admire that about you. The interesting thing as well is then you brought that to the leadership team, which is an important discussion to have. And you said, I'm noticing a pattern and here's, here's what's, what I think is happening, right? And it sounds like you invited them, you know, to a conversation that, that made it feel uh, safe and encouraged, you know, to, to participate. And those steps, you know, aren't necessarily done uh, by everybody. So again, something I admire about you. And then the last part, uh, just staying curious, right? So what are we going to do about it? Just thinking about your behavior, watching your, watching your staff and I think it can be tough because leaders, we always just want to solve, problem solve. But sometimes we have to learn like what's going on and study the system and to see that hallway, to see that uh, with your white teachers, right? They were ignoring uh, certain groups of, of kids and then being able to, okay, this is the response we need to take. So I appreciate all those things about you. And thank you for uh, sharing that with our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's an ongoing process that this is an ongoing learning process. And that's why we wrote the book is that, you know, none of us, myself included, when I became a principal, was an expert in how to have these difficult conversations. These difficult conversations are difficult because we've been raised, one, in a racially biased society, and two, we've been raised in schools that are race mute. And so if you think about this in a cyclical pattern, 
that if we're in schools, just like we're in, you know, our kids are in school today in K-12s, where K-12, where we don't talk about race. We're taught that race is taboo. Our teachers don't talk about it. And then with students, we don't have the conversation with students either. So we're actually raising racially illiterate, you know, uh, young people yeah. who then go on to be adults who become racially illiterate, illiterate adults. And then we have this cycle where none of us can talk about it. And so by hopefully through uh, having more of a race-rich conversation in schools among teachers, we can then start to have a conversation with students. And hopefully we don't like where we are as a society today in, in being unable to talk about race. We can have our schools be in a place where we start to develop racial literacy so that mm. when these young people become adults, they have an easier time talking about race uh, in, in they're in a different place than we are today. Let's dig into uh, rich conversations and in racial uh, literacy, but let's do that right after the break. And here we're going to just pause for a moment and thank our sponsors. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder is an evidence-based RTI Tier 1 universal level solution and focuses on improving executive functioning and non-cognitive skills. You can learn more and improve your student success at OrganizeBinder.com. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. School leaders know that productive student talk drives student learning, but the average teacher talks 75% of class time. TeachFX is changing that with a Fitbit for teachers that automatically measures student engagement and gives teachers feedback about what they could do differently. Learn more about the TeachFX app and get a special 20% discount for your school or district by visiting teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All right, and we're back with Tracy Benson, author of Unconscious Bias in Schools. He just brought up a point that's really interesting, having these developing racially literate individuals and having rich conversations about issues of race. And as you mentioned, that could be challenging. It could be difficult. You feel your body like even have a physical response that, oh, we're going to talk about race today? Like, really? And so how does the ruckus maker that's listening, how do they approach? Where do they even begin if they're ready to be brave in this space? Right. And it's scary. You know, we, we have to all recognize that this is scary because as a society, we've decided at some point in time that it's not acceptable to be, you know, defined as a racist. You know, at some point in time, maybe back in the 50s, it was no longer fashionable or socially acceptable to be associated with racism if you are a good person. And so there are two aspects that we talk about in terms of if, if the ruckus maker or, or any leader wants to uh, address these issues in schools. It's first, release themselves from what we call the good, non-racist, bad, racist binary. And so this is a binary that's very strong um, in our society that if we think ourselves to be a good non-racist, that means that one, we are open-minded, that we are free of bias, that we are not racist, that our intentions are good. And so we must be in a place where we have to protect this identity as a good non-racist, which often closes us off to real learning. And also with identifying ourselves as a good non-racist, we then must define those people over there as a racist. So those people who, you know, who uh, burn crosses, those people who, you know, wear, you know, wear swastikas, the neo-Nazis, those are the racists. If those are the racists over there, I am the, the, the good non-racist. And so that closes ourselves off to, 
understand that we are all learners, that we have all ingested racism to a point, and we've all ingested racial bias. So we have to see ourselves as not the, the bad racist, but we, do, we have ingested racism, and we're on a continuum of learning, rather than this static binary, that we're on a continuum of learning, along with those that we, who we see as the espoused racists, the bad racists. They're on the same learning continuum. And so that releases ourselves to be learners and say, we don't know it all. And also, when we see those who we consider to be the bad racist, they're, they're, not, they're no longer the bad racist. They're, they're on, a, on a continuum, which, which means that they're also learners. Mm. So the, our biggest barrier to engaging ourselves and also engaging others is this binary, as wanting to keep ourselves as the good non-racist and keep those people as the bad racist. And we then release ourselves that they're learners and we're also learners that pro- provides us with an opportunity to say, all right, you know, I can be vulnerable and uh, open myself up to learning because I don't know it all and neither do you. So we're going to learn together. And then the second aspect of, of really diving into to the aspects of race and racism and talking about it at the school level is uh, investigating impact over intent. Mm-hmm. Like if we're all good, well-meaning, non-racist, you know, and that's our intent is to do that. That is not always our impact on others. So taking the hallway example, like I intended to treat all students equitably. I intended to enforce the rules when it came to not congregate in, in the hallway. But the impact was that I was being racially biased toward the particular group of students unintentionally. And so by, by so one, uh, I didn't do it purposefully, but two, the impact was that I was being biased. And so allowing myself to be a learner and say that I have ingested racial bias and I will act these things out if I don't investigate them, I think is a door for us to walk through and say, all right, we're not going to do it perfectly. And we need to accept that we have racial biases. Now, how do we then locate those biases and then reduce the impact on students? Yeah, it just helps you do something about it because it's so easy to write the evil, right? The the uh, other, the the villain in the story off, right? If they're the bad racist, like we're just not going to deal with them. And, and if we are on a continuum and we're learners uh, and, and curious, then we can do something about it. And that's really what the show's about. This is what you're about. You know, it's, it's taking action then. And it takes a lot. You got to be brave to have these kind of conversations. And then you have to be brave to be able to, to explore what's happening in the hallways and, where are some other places, um, you talked about discipline, how that's the tip of the iceberg, uh, some other places that the ruckus maker might want to investigate systems-wise where unconscious bias might be happening? Um, I think when, when um, so the saying I have is where there's smoke, there's fire. So wherever <laughs> there, the, the data is, has a racial discrepancy, that's the smoke. So where's the fire? Where is the source of this racial discrepancy? Where is the source of the bias in the system? And so we become so accustomed in our society to, to equate often uh, low-income low students with lack of intelligence or you know, blackness with lack of intelligence that has become so normalized that we almost think it to be truth, which it's not. That our systems are heavily biased through a long, long history of racial bias and racism in our in our society. That it's infected the systems within our schools. And so, another place, and this is there in a lot of innocuous places where we think that you know we're just trying to do what's best for our students. So I'm going to tell you another story that happened just just a month ago. Uh, when so I teach a course called Supervision of Instruction, and I do co-observation with my students. So I go into schools side by side with students, and I observe in classrooms alongside of them to sort of teach them how to do an observation uh, in a highly effective way. 
And so on our way to an observation, I walked by a board, a positive behavior incentive board, where they chose student of the month. They told one student from eighth grade, so it was fourth grade through eighth grade, and one student from each grade was chosen each month. They would all stand together with their certificate and their picture would be up on this bulletin board. And I went in in November. And so they had August, September, October, and November up on the board. And just by walking in, I knew this was a very racially diverse school just because of the the parents that were dropping off kids. I was walking past, um, you know, a lot of black and brown kids and not just white kids in the school. So I assumed that it was, you know, a racially diverse school. But when I walked by the positive behavior board, all the students on there were white. 100%. And so 100%. Mm. All the month, they're all all white, white boys and white girls. And I took a look at it and I asked my student, like, have you seen this up here? And she's like, yeah, I walk past it every day. I was like, do you see anything that might be strange about this board? And by pointing that out to her, she's like, oh, they're all white kids. I'm like, well, what percentage of your school is white? And she, uh, she didn't know. And so what we did when we got to her classrooms, we looked up the, the uh, racial demographics of the school. It was actually only 40% white, but 100% of the students on the positive behavior board were white. And so, you know, being a visitor, visitor to the school, I didn't want to bring it up with the principal because I was a visitor and I left it to my students to say, if you want to bring it up with your, with your principal, you can do so, but it's not required. But I do see a racial discrepancy here. And so the next day, she brought it up with her principal. And in our next class at the end of November, she came in and reported that, you know, told me about the follow-up. And she said her principal felt very guilty. It was a white, well, uh, a younger white woman. She felt guilty. She felt shameful. She didn't understand why it was happening. And she was definitely interested in righting the wrong. And so um, another class period went by and she came, my student came in in December and she said, well, you'll never guess what happened. And I was like, what happened? She said, well, the students of the month for December were all kids of color. So two things about this. One, just doing, <laughs> doing, putting all kids of color to solve for the historical wrong of not having any kids of color is not the answer, right? right? It's like, wow, the pendulum um, really swung there. <laughs> right. Because now one, that, I mean, that, that one looks odd. Yeah. <laughs> and two, then the second thing is that they never really investigated why the system preferences white students. Where's the fire? So the, where's the fire? So this is just a technical solution. I feel guilty. Let me do the knee-jerk reaction and just pick all kids of color. However, what the deeper problem is, is what is it about the system of positive support that preferences white students over black and brown students? And that's the issue. Mm. And so that's another place in which we look about systems and how systems work. So the, the smoke was all white kids. Where's the fire about how we're prevencing white students in terms of positive behavior support in our school? Thank you for that that story. And that that just definitely makes it uh, real for the ruckus maker listening. So Tracy, at the end of every show, I ask every guest the same two questions. And I would love to know if you could put a message on a school marquee around the world for just a day, what would that message say? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the message that, that I carry forth with me. I have it in the, in the wall of my office. I have it in my home office. Um, it's be the change you wish to see in the world. It's Gandhi. It's, it's age old. That if we have the, the will to, uh, to uh, if we see our world in a way that we don't think is uh, best for all students and all people, that we plug in the way in which we see fit. So as an academic activist, I see that our world is very unjust um, and our country is very unjust towards black and brown people. And so I am plugging in in a way where I write about race, I research race, I talk about race, and I teach in my classes about how to be racial equitable educators. So I'm trying my best every day. You know, sometimes, you know, not the best that I could have, uh, could, but I try my best to be the change I wish to see. And I think that what 
that's what every educator and every child in our school should strive for. They want to, they should be the change they wish to see in the world. You're building a school from the ground up. You're not limited by any resources. Your only limitation is your imagination. So how would you build your dream school and what would be your top three priorities? There's a, a TED talk that I show at the beginning of every one of my classes. It's um, Sugata Mitra's uh, School in the Clouds. Um, if you haven't had a chance to check this out, it's, it's an awesome TED talk, Sugata Mitra uh, School in the Clouds. And what it talks about is how antiquated our system is. We no longer need schools. We no longer need teachers. That Right now, we've gotten to a point where we sort of we equate schooling with learning, and that's not necessarily true. I want to decouple the idea of schooling with learning. That learning happens can happen in a large um, in throughout the world in places where actually the I think the the lowest level of learning actually might happen in schools, and so we have such access to information and such access to um, ways of learning that we no longer need the school building. And so my dream for the ideal school is that we um, it's like a shopping mall of sorts where, you know, students go, we have a bunch of different learning areas and learning places. You know, we, we have, uh, it's just like your, you know, you have your gap, which might be, you know, you swap it out for that's the math center. You have your, you know, your, you know, GameStop. Spencer's gifts, yeah. you know, <laughs> GameStop, you know, where we have all the active ways where students can learn and they can choose where they go and they can, and we have all different ages. We stop this idea of you, you have to be at a certain age to be at a certain level of learning. That's simply not true. And so we break this age old system where in, in Sugata Mitra's TED talk, he talks about at one point in time, this was necessary in our society, but it's no longer necessary. And so how do we change it where learning happens in a way that students make their own schedule? where we as adults that were, we were sort of subject to a system that's now antiquated where we let go and re-release and that we're no longer wedded to this time, this specific time and place and age that people have to be at a certain developmental level in order to learn at this particular pace. And so one, no more school buildings. That's my dream. Two, we have a free, open and clear uh, system of learning where people can learn at their own pace. And three, we absolutely get rid of any sort of punitive way of testing and assessing students that is not has never been positive for students that we don't assess students as far as like a grade we don't give that we don't label them as advanced as or or not meeting standard that that goes away because that's that's an enemy of learning that we develop a way of encouraging students to learn in a way that we award them and reward them for learning rather than assigning them to a particular grade that labels them Tracy, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. Of all the things we talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Well, what I'd like the ruckus maker to remember, and hopefully um, we've got this across when we had our conversation today and what we tried to to, uh, talk about in the book, is uh, regardless of the amount of effort, time, and resources education leaders put into improving the academic achievement of students of color, If unconscious bias is overlooked, improvement efforts may never achieve their highest potential. So the foundation of academic achievement for all students, and especially for students of color, is addressing racial bias in schools. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com, or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. 
If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed.